And welcome to another edition of Two Sober Chicks. I'm Lisa, part of the dynamic duo that is Julie and Lisa on our regular podcast. I hope you continue to join us as we go through the big book page by page together. But today we have another fantastic speaker. Please welcome Carolyn. Oh, my name is Carolyn. Uh, my sobriety date is March 10th, 1972, which means I have 51 and a half years sobriety. So it's possible. I did not have a traumatic childhood. I mean, I had stuff happen that was not pleasant and whatever, but nothing that rose to the level of trauma. And I hear a lot of people speak that had really, for me, sounds like horrific childhoods. And I think the tendency that I hear a lot is to blame the childhood on the the alcoholism on the childhood. I had alcoholism in my family. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Uh, he drank himself out of being able to work. Um, he ran through several, he was a small store owner. He owned an ice cream shop at one point, drank himself out of that. I had other relatives who were alcoholics. And what that tells me is that I had the genes to be an alcoholic, you know? I was I didn't have a perfect childhood, but I didn't have a horrible childhood. Nothing that gave me a reason to try and escape into the bottle. But when I started drinking, I loved it. I remember the first night I drank, I was 18. I was at a small house party. Somebody brought out a bottle. I'd never had a drink. My father wasn't an alcoholic, so I mean, neither of my parents, direct parents were. And um, I think I just, you know, got taste kind of weird, but I drank it. And I had another one. And I had another one because we were sitting around talking. And I had never felt so good in my life. Not that I felt bad before it, but I remember telling myself, I think I just fell into the pearly gates of heaven and I never want to leave. You know, the reaction my body had to alcohol was like instant love. You know, just, I I couldn't believe I could feel that good and I couldn't wait to drink again and that started the whole thing. But my childhood itself, um, the biggest trauma, if you want to call it that, which I don't, my dog died when I was about 10. That was the most difficult thing. I got over it. And I had a pet turtle that my father let loose one time. He said, we don't need to keep it. And I was sad with that. That's piddly shit compared to what other people go through. But I was the other thing that was difficult, um, not trauma, but difficult. I went to uh, school and um, obviously... And the teachers came in halfway through the first grade and told me to come out and follow them, take my books and come with them. I thought I'd done something wrong. And they put me in second grade. And I was totally confused. Um, and it turns out that according to my parents anyway, I was, quote, gifted, whatever that means. And I translate that looking back on it as I was pretty good reading books. That doesn't mean I was good at anything else. I'm not. <laughs> I was good at books. 
So, and of course, if you're a little kid and you're in school and you're good at reading and you like books, wow, she's smart, right? She likes books, she can read. Um, so I, you know, my parents had this mistaken impression that they had baby genius on their on board, which was anything but true. I'm still good at books. I'm still kind of like thumbs all, thumbs in a lot of most other things. Not everything, but most. So which is what I mean by I didn't have a perfect childhood. I had my feeling different from other kids up to a point because um, of that. You know, the kids kind of, who's this coming into our second grade, you know? And um, my family was a little different. Um, my father was an artist, graphic artist. My So was my grandmother, and my uncle, my cousin, me turned out also and my mother was a musician that wasn't exactly the typical family in the neighborhood that I grew up in so I did feel a little disconnected you know my mother was a jazz musician by the way so I did feel a little different than the other kids not less than not better than but a little different like I had a girlfriend in school and her father was the meat manager of the local supermarket. Okay. <laughs> My father's off doing his thing. So it it was it was different. Um I don't most of my childhood was relatively uneventful. Till I went to I went to college. I went to the local state school, and um, we didn't have enough money for me to go to you know a fancy school. So I went to the local state school, and I did well uh, the first year and the second year. I was sixteen when I went into college, so right there I was two years younger than everybody else. Um. I don't know what that meant, except I must have been two years less mature, whatever. Um, I didn't have any major issues that I remember from college either. Um, I remember it when I, junior when I started drinking. And man, I made sure my father had alcohol in the house. He was not an alcoholic, but he had, you know, when they had company, they'd pour a drink or they played they played cards on Saturday night. And uh, with the couple, we lived in an apartment on the beach. And the people upstairs, my parents would go up and play cards with on Saturday night. And they'd have a few drinks, but they didn't get drunk. You know, it was just what you did when you played cards. So I started, after I had my first drink, I started, you know, taking some of my father's alcohol. Um, I was hanging around with some of the kids that were slightly older than me. So I managed to get alcohol. And then my life went crazy, uh, partly the times it was. I, If anybody has heard of the 60s, you know, <laughs> I drank through the 60s, which was, I must admit, a fun time to drink. Uh, it was a lot different than it is today. Um, I got a big crush on my one of my professors, and I literally stalked him for two years. <laughs> the day I graduated, we got together. <laughs> Almost married him. 
<clears throat> but then he said he wanted kids and, I, uh, and I'm not ready for that. So I split. But I had a lot of company. I mean, again, I said I'm an artist. I was hanging around in the art community uh, in Boston, where I was from. And um, everybody was as crazy as I was. I mean, it was the times. You can, I can see my life on the late show. You know, we were, I lived in a commune. Uh, I was a hippie. Uh, probably don't. muted yourself. Miss Carolyn, please unmute. I haven't been muted the whole time, I hope. No, ma'am. Just accidentally. Oh. Go ahead. No. Oh. So I said, Betsy with the flamingo and the flowers in her hair looks like a hippie. I used to look like that, but I didn't have a flamingo. Um, you know. So, I mean, there was Woodstock. There was all this stuff and all this craziness. And uh, I had plenty of company and uh, the crazier I was, the more happy I was. I mean, fun crazy, not not nasty crazy. Um, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was afraid of having kids and being tied down. I didn't want that. Uh, I I didn't know what I wanted. I basically just hung around with a lot of people. Um, and drank more and got into, had a lot of boyfriends. Um, and the relationships lasted for a while till they got bored or I got bored. And then I found someone else. And uh, I got a job when I first graduated because my parents said I had to. And back then there weren't too many jobs available for women. And um I got offered one as a school teacher, so I took it, but that didn't last. But uh, I did that for about a few years, and then I quit that. I got very angry. I was I didn't want to be doing it and uh, whatever, so I got very drunk one New Year's Eve, and I called up the principal and said, I quit this effing job and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, that was the end of that. Um. I was, I had no plan of what I wanted, I guess. Um, I made a suicide pact with one of my boyfriends. He was a musician. I'm an artist. We both decided, this is how crazy I was. We were like in our 24 at the time, maybe. If we weren't both world famous by the time we were 30, we'd commit suicide together. Uh, obviously, I don't know if he did or not, but I didn't. So I'm still here. So my life was kind of, but again, a lot of it, I had a lot of company. This wasn't just my insanity. There was a general insanity in in the people in, the, in their 20s at that time. Um, but my life, the, the drinking kept getting more and more out of control. You know, I used to be able to go out and have a few and have fun and come home. And then I'd go out. And I wouldn't know how many I had, and I couldn't stop, you know. And it happened; it didn't happen overnight. It it just very gradually got, you know. It be it would be like pouring glasses of water in in a sink. You know, the one glass of water doesn't fill the sink, but you keep pouring it in, and it does. And and the more I drank, 
the crazier I became or the more dysfunctional I became or whatever. I mean, uh, you know, I not often, but a couple of times I woke up in the morning and looked over and said, who are you? You know, which I found not very pleasant, particularly depending on who was there. Once in a while it was pleasant, but most of the time it wasn't. Um, and I realized inside that something was wrong, but I really didn't know what it was. I didn't want to think about it. So have another drink. You know, how come I can't hold a job? How come um, I haven't found the man that I wanted to marry in my life? How come, how come, how come, you know, have another drink? And um, And I romanced the drink, you know. All the great artists were drunk. Most of them were, actually. <laughs> so, you know, that's the first, I got the first requisite to be a great artist. I'm a drunk. Uh, that wasn't true. So, I, you know, I kidded myself all along. My parents were totally confused. They didn't know what was happening. All right, I want to get to sobriety. So I wound up, finally, I couldn't... Um, I wasn't earning any money because I wasn't working. I kept going downhill, you know. I wound up uh, homeless at the very end for three months only um, because it got cold. I was up in New Hampshire, and it was getting cold, and I ran back home to my mother. But I remember vividly sitting on the curb at the side of the street with a friend of mine, panhandling at like, seven in the morning people were going to work and we're looking at each other like look at those a-holes going to work they're slaves we're free you know that's that's really good thinking um i was sleeping in a friend's front hall closet i didn't even get a couch i got a front hall closet on top of his sneakers so i have a resentment about that <laughs> but um so I finally, I gave up and I, I went running home to my mother. And um, I lasted about a week not drinking. And then I I picked up a drink and, and, I, and I went and crashed with an old boyfriend. And I got scared. And I had heard about AA on TV. You know, I had never really looked into it, but I, I knew it existed and I knew it was supposed to help alcoholics. And I admitted, you know, I was a drunk alcoholic's a fancy name for drunk. Anyway, whatever. I was an alcoholic. So I called AA. And they gave me uh, the location and name of a meeting in Marblehead, Massachusetts. And I asked my father and my father took me to my first meeting on a Friday night. Which, looking back, he had a lot of guts to do that. <laughs> I mean, that must have been very difficult for him because I was still drunk. I was coming to from my third drunk of the day on my mother's kitchen floor. And my father picked me up. I was I could walk, but I was still drunk and took me to my first meeting. And that was my last drink. Um. And I got a woman came up and said, I'll be a sponsor. She, I don't know how long she was sober. She was a waitress up the street in a restaurant that served alcohol. Um, I went to, that was a Friday night. I went to a meeting on Saturday. 
I went to a meeting on Sunday. She called me. We talked. Monday, she said to me, um, there's an AA clubhouse. Why don't you go there? It's a safe place to be. You can't drink. There's no alcohol. So I went, and it was like six guys old enough to be my grandfather in there. And so I sat there reading a book. And uh, and this is not recommended, but it's my story. All of a sudden, the door opened, and God walked in. He was six foot one blonde, and his name was Boyd. This was at noontime, and I was living with him by dinner. Uh, not recommended. Fortunately, he was a good guy. Uh, he was a drunk. He was six years sober. And um, in my case, again, I can't recommend it because mostly, most of the time that's a disaster. But in my case, he wasn't totally nuts. And I wanted to drink a couple of times, but I didn't because I knew he'd kick me out. And we were together for eight and a half months, and he got a job running an art gallery out of out of the country and, and left. And by that time, I knew I wanted to be sober. And I had been going to a lot of meetings. He took me to his group. Um, I got sober. There was no Zoom then, of course. I got sober in a uh, small fishing village north of Boston. And we talk about AA being a family. And to me, it is very much so. And it was from the beginning. I mean, everybody in my home group and whatever feels like family, I know all of you well. Um, I stay with Stacy in, in storms. <laughs> I know Stacy and her dog and the whole family and everybody. But the group I got sober in, it was a small fishing village. It was a bunch of lobster fishermen. They all knew each other. They'd been together for generations. They married each other. So it was like you'd hear in a meeting, well, when your Uncle Tom told me this and blah, 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 you know, they got sober, to, drank together, got sober together. And I came into this and I was like the baby of the group. So I felt like I was being held. You know, I had, I got a lot of support. I got a lot of love. I got a lot of attention. I could, um, I felt safe. The, the there's no leader in the group, but the guy who was the most vocal or whatever was a six foot five guy, big, huge guy. And I he made me feel very safe. And I, I looked upon him as my my dad in AA. And I had my dad at home. And I read the literature, didn't understand much of it. I will say for me, I don't know if it's true for everybody, but for me, in the beginning, it was the people who kept me sober more than the literature because I couldn't understand the literature right away. I could read it, but it, 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 I didn't really understand it. And I went to a lot of meetings, talked to a lot of people, almost broke out and slipped five times, wanted to, but I called somebody. If I hadn't made the phone call, I mean, I was a real mess. One, I broke up with, you know, the current love of my life. And I was, you know, debating whether to kill myself or whatever. And I called somebody and they had me go to their house and they babysat me for an entire weekend. And I didn't kill myself and I didn't drink. And four other times I wanted to drink, not that bad. 
but I was afraid I was going to, and I called somebody. And I'm convinced if I hadn't made those phone calls, I'd I'd have been, I'd have drank. And if I had picked up a drink, would I have come back? Who knows? I might not be sitting here. Um, I had a lot of people that were helping me. I fell in love a lot. There was one guy who was older and he was married and nothing happened, but he knew what I was like and he flirted with me and he went to a lot of meetings and he told me what meetings he was going to. So what did I do? I followed him around from meeting to meeting for several months. You know, I mean, um, then he flirted at the meeting too. So I, I wasn't going to the meeting necessarily to go to the meeting. I was going to meeting to see him. His nickname was Red. He had red hair. Um, so my sobriety, it was the people more than anything. As I stayed sober and read the literature, I and even though I'm good at books, the literature is more than just reading a book. I mean, you have to understand it. You know, and what I say now looking at the time, the conclusion that I've come to now, like one of the ones that is important to me, as a person, as an alcoholic, and as a person, I am enough, and I have nothing to prove. Those are two of the gifts sobriety has given to me. God made you, God made me, God doesn't make junk is another way of saying it. There's, I, I, I was not born defective. You know, some people have diabetes, some people have whatever, you know, I had alcoholism. There was another way of looking at it that alcoholism is a gift because in sobriety now and at my age, I'm 82, soon to be 83 in three days, <laughs> I am far happier than a lot of the people my age that I know that are not alcoholics, you know, because they don't have this, all these people in their lives. They don't have a big family in their lives. They are disappointed with how life turned out, you know, whereas for us, we have the ability to be of service, to be close to people, to love people, to be grateful for what we have instead of, oh, my God, my retirement pay sucks and I don't have a fancy house and my husband's an asshole and blah, blah, blah. And some of these people, I live in the retirement senior community. Some of these people are really miserable and they're not drunks. I think we had to grow spiritually as alcoholics. Or we we drank. And so I'm grateful. Uh, I, I can't imagine what my life would be right now, especially with COVID running around the last couple of years. If I was by myself and didn't have you people, I don't think I'd be very happy. Um, so God doesn't create junk. You are enough. And you have nothing to prove is the other thing that I say. I have ADHD. Uh, a lot of drunks do, by the way, whether you know it or not. Not everyone, but a lot. And that is a focusing issue, focusing in organization. My house looks like a disorganized bookstore. It looks like I have ADHD. <laughs> and um, 
that's not a big is not a big deal. I mean, I, there are certain techniques I use to deal with it and keep myself on track. I make lists so I don't forget things. And, um, you know, I just try to stay in the present moment as much as possible. Otherwise, you know, I hear people say, you know, I get all these thoughts running around and the monkeys in my brain. That's ADHD for me. You know, I can be doing one thing and I'm thinking of 10 things, other things that I have to do next or that I, you know, got to go back and do that, blah, blah, blah. And then I make mistakes in what I'm doing now. And I, uh, I there are ways to deal with that. Um, it's not really a major problem. But it's one I have to deal with. And I think a lot of us, we have something we have to deal with. It could be diabetes. It could be whatever. We all have something we have to deal with. And whatever it is, what are your choices? And nothing to prove. Um, I don't have to apologize to anybody. I don't feel less than. I don't feel, you know... I don't feel less than because I got ADHD. I don't feel less than because I'm still good at books. I'm still hopeless at a lot of other things. Uh, and it's okay. None of us is good at everything. I make mistakes all the time. So does everybody else. You know, it's not a big deal to make a mistake. Hopefully it's not one that involves the cops or the government, like not paying your taxes or something. But, you know, it, it's okay. I, I call somebody the wrong name. I, you know, forget stuff. I try not to do those things, but they happen. And it doesn't make me a bad person. I do really stupid things at times, and that's okay. You know, we all do. And I hear some people in meetings, they get so upset that they did something stupid and somebody found out about it. And... We all do. We can't. Most of us are good at some things and lousy at others, and that's okay. You know, and that, that has taken an awful lot of stress out of my life to realize that. And then the other thing that the program talks about all the time is what they call it, we call it service, but it's it's giving back, it's showing love. I have a cat that sleeps with me. The cat loves me. He just, he's best place for him to be in his own mind is right up against me. Whether it's in bed, in my chair. I mean, I call him peanut interruptus because he's always, I'm here, I'm here, you know. I'm surprised he isn't up here now. Um, you know, we are blessed. We are blessed. The happiest people I know are either grandmothers with like 15 grandchildren who were just covered in babies or people in the program, you know, who have stayed sober for a length of time. And it doesn't have to be 51 years. I mean, I was pretty happy after a few. But the thing is, you get happier. You know, I, I look back and I was, let's say, five years sober, I was happy. But I'm happier now than I was then. Oh, by the way, I did get married. I uh, married. I met my husband in the program, and then I'll end with that because it's I get to cut a couple of minutes. Uh, he was not my type. I had a type, like a lot of people do. He wasn't my type, but he was in the program and he was in my group, 
And uh, I was riding in and out of Boston every day for a year on the bus with him because I took the bus to get to work. And so half an hour in, half an hour out, I got to know him as a person. And I said, wow. And I really got to respect him and I liked him and I liked him more and more. And then I said, he'd make a great husband for somebody. And I remember thinking, why not me? So I went after him and I got him. <laughs> we were married for 34 years until he passed away. And I remember one story of him when I speak about how kind he was a Marine officer. Now you think of Marine officers as, you know, mm, tough. He was. But one time, and then I'll end with this, it had been raining. And uh, I saw him out in the driveway. I said, what are you doing? And we had, you know, a lawn, and then we had the driveway and whatever. He is picking earthworms up between his thumb and first finger gently to not squash them, to take them off the driveway where they get, you know, fried by the sun and putting them back gently into the grass so that they would survive. Now, how is that? <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy. And, uh, so I wound up, I mean, God gave me the right person to marry, too. Plus, he had six kids by that time and uh, from other people, your two other wives, that, but that he'd had those kids when he was drinking, or his wives had. So now I have six kids, and a, I don't know. They each had three kids, and they all had three kids. I've got a small town for a family, which is nice. So I'm very happy, and uh, I'm in good health. And uh, at my age, I'm in excellent health. So stay sober. It gets better. Oh, 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 Thank you, Miss Carolyn. That's a great note to end on. Stay sober. It gets better. The longer you're around, the more you work the program, the better it can be. Carolyn is from Celebrate the Morning in Florida. Thanks for dropping by.